Hello, I'm Tom Nettles, and you are listening to Reclamation Worship. My name is Jason Allen, and I'm the host of Reclamation Worship, the podcast devoted to reclaiming a biblical view of worship for the church. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reclamation Worship. Today's guest is Dr. Tom Nettles. Dr. Nettles is a church historian, he's a writer, and he's also a member of the board for Founders Ministries. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Nettles on today to talk about a, a very important issue, and that being theological drift. So we're going to get to that in just a few moments. But before I do that, let me just say thank you so much for uh, being a part of this uh, listening family. Thank you for uh, sharing this podcast with others. And uh, I want to continue to ask that you would do that, that you would get the word out by uh, telling your neighbors and friends and uh, your folks at church and also encouraging them to go to iTunes where they can subscribe and leave a rating and a review for Reclamation Worship. If you've not yet had an opportunity to visit reclamationworship.com, I want to invite you to do that. You can listen to previous episodes of this podcast there, as well as track along with the new series that I'm doing with my children on the Pilgrim's Progress. All right, well, let's head on over to the interview. Dr. Nettles, thank you so much for joining me on Reclamation Worship. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Why don't you begin by telling us about yourself, who you are, what you're doing, and uh, and then I'd love to hear uh, your testimony, how the Lord saved you. Well, I'm uh, right now, my status is retired. I'm a retired seminary professor. I'm still serving as a senior professor, and so I'm teaching one course each semester at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I've taught at four seminaries at Southwestern, at Mid-America, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and and now it's at Southern. Uh, my home is Mississippi. I was reared in a Southern Baptist church. I've been doing some uh, investigation of my background and have found that at least as far back as my great-grandfather, we were all Southern Baptists. Uh, they were members of a church in Monroeville, Alabama. Uh, and I actually found a minute book there that the church graciously let me look at, and I found the a place where my uh, uncles, great uncles and so forth were, were in the church and were recording secretaries for the church and they had had a protracted meeting and they were talking about the people that were admitted into the church, some by letter, and then it had some others by experience, which meant that they had to give a statement of the work of grace in their heart. And one of those was T.B. Nettles, who was mm-hmm. my grandfather. Uh, and he lived with us for the last three years of his life. And so uh, to see that uh, statement that he was received by experience explains a lot about how he was when he lived with us. I sat by him in church. I learned to sing harmony because he could sing the bass line. And uh, (laughs) so it was just, and it was great uh, realizing that. But of course, it's not, Christianity is not something that comes down through the genetics. It's something that God's grace has to bestow. And I'm a really amazed that for this many generations, God has been gracious to uh, save people within my, my family and to give me that kind of rich heritage uh, with which I was invested from the time of my birth. 
Mm. Uh, I was converted after one year in seminary, actually. Wow. I made a profession of faith when I was around 11 or 12, was baptized, had wonderful teachers in the church as far as their affection for all the young people was concerned, a wonderful pastor who believed the Bible, believed Christ was the only way, preached very well. I loved the church. I loved everything about it. I didn't want to disappoint anybody in that. So I, after I made my profession of faith and was baptized, I tried to live in the right way. But uh, around my senior year in high school, I began to have severe doubts about whether or not I really uh, had a saving relationship with Christ. I didn't even know what to call it that at that time. I mm. was speaking about Christ giving us purpose and so forth. But I went to college and for, for four years I struggled and that intensified my struggle because some of my friends there in philosophy class began to fall away from the faith and uh, became at least agnostic. And a couple of them, I think, uh, professed to be atheists at that time. Uh, and that was making it very uh, difficult because there were intellectual struggles I had not dealt with before. But uh, I was uh, very convinced, though, because of the way my pastor preached, I was convinced that Christianity was true. And I was convinced the Bible was the word of God. And so I, I wasn't drawn off into that kind of uh, epistemological vacuum that they had been sucked into. Uh, but it gave me great uh, disturbance of mind as to how I could actually relate in my own conscience and my own sense of security to what the gospel was. And I uh, went to seminary under the impression I'd been called to ministry. My wife and I moved to Fort Worth, Texas. The first year there was great as far as learning was concerned, but increased my turmoil internally because I began to wonder how can people live their whole lives with this kind of insecurity, mm. still believing these things are true. How can you, how can you do that? How can you stand up to it? And the summer after my first year, I was leading the singing actually in a revival meeting. I shared these insecurities with a friend of mine and we talked and he said, well, you know, all these answers that I'm trying to give you. You just got to pray and see what God shows you. So I did. I prayed and it became very clear to me. I'm not sure how that I saw things in a way I'd never seen before. It was very simple that mm. Christ was a person uh, who was the God man who died on the cross for sinners. And that if you did not repent of your sin and come to him as a savior, you were not a Christian. Mm. And I had always talked about Jesus as the one who gives us purpose, but I'd never really seen the reality of sin and his redemptive work on the cross. I saw it clearly that night. I told my friend, well, I'm lost. Mm. I just, I don't, I don't know whatever this salvation and forgiveness of sins is. And he just got down on the floor, put his face on the floor and said, well, let's ask God to save you. Uh, so he began praying and I started praying. And within that framework, uh, it became very clear that Christ had received me, uh, that a complete change in my mind about the cross uh, had taken place. Uh, and so I had to reinvestigate the whole issue of call, whether or not God's providence had placed me where he wanted me. And mm. I concluded that I was in the right place. There was nothing I wanted to do any more than learn, first of all, what the gospel was and what theology was and why I had been so fooled uh, mm. about myself for those uh, many years, probably for, for a good 10 years anyway, and six years of, of real struggle. Uh, and I began to read Baptist Confessions of Faith and and theology books. And I very quickly, within a few weeks, I had become a Calvinist. I had came to believe that what had happened to me was an effectual calling, that it described perfectly what had happened to me. Uh, and 
that began to make sense. The synthesis of all of those doctrines began to put together uh, theology and, and the Bible in a way I'd never perceived it before. It became sort of a foundation from which I could study uh, scripture. Uh, and uh, anyway, was a uh, sort of the, I guess, the, uh, in my mind, the greatest encouragement to see the Bible indeed as a, as a book of divine holiness, a book of God's sovereignty, mm. uh, and a book of, of what it means that we're saved by grace through faith. Wow. Uh, so that's how I came into the, uh, to be a Christian, and then at the same time reaffirmed what I had perhaps sensed uh, about the importance of gospel ministry um, at the time of my conversion. Wow. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Were you, so did you finish up your seminary studies and then and stay in school to do postgraduate work uh, did. or did you take I, some time I, off? Yeah, I finished the Master of Divinity in 1971 and some of my friends were asking me, are you going to do the PhD work? And I wasn't disposed to. I said, no, I want to go ahead and get a, a church position. Uh, I was already serving in church staffs, but uh, the more I thought about it, the more I realized the MDiv program had opened up to me a lot of things that I still had questions about and wanted to study more. And so I went into the PhD program in order to actually become a better pastor, to be mm. able to deal with theology and biblical exposition in a better way. And in that process, um, a friend of mine named Russ Bush and I took some seminars together. And this was a time where there were controversies going on in Southern Baptist life over the issue of biblical authority. And Russ and I talked about this a lot. And we had said that if we were ever able to be, to minister close to each other, to be in a place where we could do it, we wanted to work on a book that would uh, ask the question, what if Baptists believe about the Bible? Mm. Because we were being told that uh, Baptists have never believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's a 19th century construct that comes out of Princeton Seminary. Uh, but Baptists have been very strong on the right of private interpretation and on liberty of conscience and have not been bound by these scholastic attitudes of inerrancy and verbal inspiration and all that. And, of course, Russ and I thought, how can that possibly be true? How can Baptists be a people of the book and not believe in verbal inspiration or not believe in its errorless uh, nature? Is it really true that that's what Baptists have been? And so we resolve with each other that if we were ever able to teach together or to be in a ministry together somewhere, that we would try to work on such a book. And in God's providence, I was, after I finished my PhD program and Russ was already teaching at the seminary, I was asked to come and teach church history. Began teaching in January of 76. He and I soon began to work on the book and, uh, and published Baptist in the Bible in, in 1980. Uh, so all of that was sort of a, a blur of, of continuity, of, of, of concerns, of theology, of the authority of Scripture, of ministry. It's just it's amazing kind of how all of these things synthesize into a life uh, that is, uh, by God's grace, focused on his, his truth and what his truth says about uh the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and what it says about the redemption that he's brought about for sinners. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, you are a church historian, and um, 
one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because uh, there's an issue that's it's been on my mind, and and it's it seems to be more and more uh, on on the front burner of uh, the church today, and and what's happening uh, in and around church world, and and that's the issue of theological drift. Um, so could you maybe just for our listeners uh, give a, a general uh, description of or, or definition for what we're talking about when we think of theological drift? At bottom, theological drift occurs when anyone puts in human philosophy or human plausible arguments for uh, the Word of God, for direct revelation. If we think that we can add to, subtract from, or substitute anything for direct revelation, we've begun theological drift. Mm. Uh, If we think that we can explain something better than the Bible has explained it, uh, we're in theological drift. If we want to leave out something the Bible teaches uh, and just not pay attention, we're in theological drift. Uh, if uh, we are uh, trying to blend Christianity and see some big ideas from Christianity in with other tantalizing ideas that we've adopted from moral philo- uh, the worldly philosophy, we're in theological drift. So they're all, they're all different degrees of it, but it comes from some, some level of dissatisfaction with, first of all, the absolute uh, authority, complete truthfulness of Scripture on the one hand, and then whether or not Scripture is sufficient for everything that we need to to know and believe and confess uh, concerning uh, God uh, and His purpose in the world. Mm. That's helpful. There there are a number of issues today that uh, seem to be uh, coming from or or maybe even causing theological drift. Uh, And I was on the campus of uh, the school that you still uh, teach at uh, back in January of this year, and uh, I, I was looking at a, a book of the the school's history, and I was shocked, Dr. Nettles, to find that early on in the school's history, um, maybe even 10 years uh, into the school's history, there was a challenge to... Uh, Christian orthodoxy. And and one of the professors who was there in the early days of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's history uh, challenged Christian orthodoxy. So could you talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Crawford Toy and and what happened there uh, on the seminary campus? Yeah, Crawford Howell Toy was in one of the very early classes. He he, he enrolled in the seminary before the Civil War. Uh, and finished the whole course, I think, within uh, within less than three years. He was brilliant. He was going to the mission field, but the Civil War came, and there was no way to send him to the mission field. And so he he served in the Confederate Army for a while, actually was, was captured and in a prison camp for for some time. Uh, he After that, he taught at Albemarle Female Institute up in, in Virginia. He taught Lottie Moon. There, he and Lottie Moon developed a, a real friendship, which developed eventually into a romantic uh, involvement while she was on the mission field. Uh, he went to study in Germany at the Tübingen School, and while he was there, he studied with uh, great insight, and he came to reject their views. When he came back to the States, he began to teach at Furman, uh, and he presented a paper, a scholarly paper, on what the errors of the Tübingen school were. This was one of the major schools that developed what we know as higher criticism, historical criticism that denounced the 
the doubts the veracity of many of the historical references or the order in which the Bible was written and it seeks to use secular literary theories to impose them on the on the scripture in order to find out how the Bible came together and why it has certain worldviews in certain places. And so it assumes that there are a variety of theologies, a variety of worldviews, variety of provenances from which all of these different ideas have come. And so he criticized that and was very insightful as to what he thought the errors were. Uh, then he went and he taught at Southern Seminary, began teaching at Southern in, uh, in 1869, 10 years after the school had been established. And his first uh, public lecture there, when it was called his inaugural oration, was about the uh, hermeneutical, the, the, the uh, obligations of Baptists, the, the, how the obligation for a right interpretation of Scripture. And the Baptists, since we believe the Bible and the Bible only is our source of authority, this puts a, a heavy load upon Baptists to make sure that we're interpreting Scripture properly. And he affirmed in that that once the, uh, the meaning of a text is known, we affirm that the Bible in every iota of its substance is infallibly true. Uh, and so he's affirming a strong view of infallibility at that time. He began to, uh, pardon the pun, he began to toy around with, uh, with evolution. He sought to make the early chapters of Genesis consistent with evolution. Uh, and the more he studied evolution, the more he studied the Bible, the more he realized there were disparities that could not be put together. And so what he chose to do was maintain his scientific mindset in receiving whatever science said about the origins. But then he began to seek to reinterpret the early chapters of Genesis in a poetic way. Mm. And then he began to find these things that he had learned at Tübingen to be somewhat attractive to say, well, oh, well, these came out of this worldview and this worldview. And so he begins to teach the Old Testament from the standpoint of historical criticism. Mm. Uh, and this gradually happened. It was something that did not happen just in one year or two years, but it gradually infused itself into more and more of his teaching. So that when the school moved to Louisville in 1877, uh, the students were well aware that he was teaching something that was quite at odds with the way the other faculty members believed about the scripture. Mm. This became something that was reported to some people in newspapers. So there were newspaper articles about this. Uh, uh, Boyce and Broadus sought to get him to go, go back to his original way of teaching, to teach, teach it from the standpoint that he had earlier. He would get in class and students would ask him questions about what he had said like the year before or something. You know how nasty these students are in asking these <laughs> right. hard questions. Right. And so he was an honest man. He would say, well, yes, this is what I taught before. And this is what I really think is the best way to put together these, these texts. And so it became clear he simply could not teach from the standpoint that he had uh, earlier had been uh, his method of, uh, method of operation. Uh, and because it was becoming such a, a matter of public knowledge, uh, he eventually was advised to resign, to submit his resignation to the trustees and let the trustees decide as to whether or not his teaching was in accord with the abstract of principles, mm. uh, the first article of which is a statement about scripture. And so in 1879, he submitted his resignation. The trustees studied it, and they accepted his resignation uh, as being out of accord with the confessional statement of, of the school. Uh, and so he left. He became an, uh, uh, an editor of a, a, a literary uh, paper in New York, I think called The Independent, for a year. Then 
he went to Harvard and he taught Semitics at Harvard and mm. stayed there for the rest of his career up until the 19, early 1920s, I believe. Edited many scholarly volumes, but ended his life uh, calling himself a theist. Mm. Uh, and although he never joined a Unitarian church, uh, Unitarian Sunday School Society, uh, published some of his popular materials on biblical studies and, and so forth. So there was a definite uh, drift, not only theologically from, from biblical authority early, but then in the whole theology of the Bible, and then even from the veracity of the Christian faith uh, itself. Mm. Uh, Toy was a very popular teacher. He was uh, seen as a brilliant scholar. Uh, and <clears throat> when they were sending him off to New York. Boyce and Broadus were with him, and Boyce raised his right hand and put his left arm around Toy and said, oh, Toy, I would give this arm to be cut off if you could be where you were 10 years ago and stay there. Mm. Uh, but he couldn't. Wow. So that wow. was the first big theological uh, difficulty that developed uh, at, at Southern right. Seminary. And, and there were a number of other progressive leaders who came on the scene and, and through various uh, acts of their own, through various acts of their own, and um, and other decisions that they made, it led to uh, a situation where the the school itself drifted more and more into uh, theological progressivism or, or theological drift. Um, enter Dr. Albert Moeller, who in the mid '90s came on the scene and worked really hard to. Uh, help restore some of the original uh, teaching of of the school and, and sought to uh, return a view of biblical inerrancy. We hear of challenges to historic orthodoxy today, and we can be tempted to think that this is something new. But uh, through that example that you gave of Dr. Toy and, and through the other things that, uh, that happened at Southern Seminary uh, that led to Dr. Moeller's arrival, we realize this is nothing new. As a matter of fact, we we think of theological progressives like Adam and Eve, and uh, and also uh, the apostles themselves uh, warned the early church about theological progressives and yes. about the possibility of theological drift. Um, I want to share with you this quote uh, from Dr. Moeller and get your thoughts on this. Uh, Dr. Moeller has said, you can't seduce an institution from the left to the right. You can seduce an institution from the right to the left. Dr. Moeller goes on to say, that's what happens almost everywhere. There's never an incremental move to the right. And it's because after all, we're standing for an unchanging standard of the inerrancy of God's word. You can't be just a little bit committed to the inerrancy of scripture. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Nettles? Well, I think that's, I think that's true. You, uh, if you have an absolute standard and you don't believe the absolute standard, you're already in drift. You can be very close to it in many ways, but uh, if, if there's some doubt that comes in as to whether or not it is, it is absolutely true, then, then incrementally you can, you can depart more and more from it, as we see in the case of, of C.H. Toy. He thought that his views would be helpful to these students that were struggling, that just not, not being, you know, you don't have to say that the Bible is true in every historical assertion or every ethical principle that is there, as long as you see the general uh, theological truth of, of, of Christ and who he is and 
what he's done for us. But once you've departed from the authority of scripture, then incrementally you can begin to say, well, no, this is irrational also, or this doesn't fit this idea. And gradually more and more and more of these things will be set apart. And so the only answer to that is to come back to what the Bible claims about itself. And that is that it's inspired of God. And so though we may not understand everything, we have to uh, trust that God is consistent with himself and that as he gives us more light from his word, we can understand more and more of it and submit ourselves to it. Uh, we can say, and I think in a, in a very genuine sense, I may not understand that, but I believe it. Mm, right. <laughs> so so that's, I think that's true in a, in a lot of areas. There, there are some texts that just go beyond us, but, but we can affirm that when I get enough light to understand what that text says, I can say even beforehand, I believe it because I believe it's inspired of God. Uh, right now, I'm not mature enough to understand it, so I haven't got it synthesized into my way of talking about these things, but I have a pre-commitment to believe everything that it, that it says, and that, that's the only way you can approach Scripture. So incrementally, people can be led away from the authority of Scripture. Now, being led away from the authority of scripture, I think that is just, that's a step that's taken and it's absolute once it's done. Mm -hmm. But the incremental movement to the left into progressive theology comes as more and more of the doctrines of scripture begin to fall away. But mm -hmm. once you make the break from the absolute authority and the inerrancy of scripture, you already are on a drift and it's just going to be a matter of time and temperament uh, as to how far, uh, as to how far you go. So I think that what Dr. Moeller said is exactly right, that when you're calling people back to a reaffirmation of Christian faith, it has to be, we believe everything the Bible says because it is a revelation from God. We didn't invent the Christian faith. We didn't send Christ to die on the cross. We don't know when he's coming back. We don't know the depth of our sin. We're not sure of all the things that took place in Adam and Eve when Satan led them away. But the Bible affirms all of these things. And so we believe all of them uh, with the prayer that more light will come forth from the word and we'll be able to understand them with a, a greater sense of coherence. But we have to be brought back to the point where we say we believe it all. Mm. Well, here's the million dollar question. Why are we tempted to theological drift? We're tempted the theological drift because that was the very nature of the fall. Uh, the, I, I think that the fall, it was not something that arose out of a perverse heart because they had not yet sinned and they had not yet been consigned to, to death, which is the corruption of the, of the soul. But uh, they, uh, Eve engaged in some sort of an intellectual discussion with Satan. And what he, had did, what he did in saying, you shall not surely die, I don't think that what he was doing was saying, you can't believe God. God doesn't have your well-being uh, in mind. I think what he was saying was, you know God, and you know that he's merciful, and you know that he is gracious and beautiful. And so something threatening you with, with something like death, you know that God is not the kind of being who is going to kill you immediately if you just disobey this one thing. God is merciful. I think that he was appealing to, to Eve's love of God and her trust in his goodness to say that uh, this thing of being killed by God, can you imagine God mm. killing you? God saying you are now in death? And that, I think that's, oh, well, uh, that, yeah, that makes sense. I can see why, why God and said, and then also 
he knows it'll make you wise. This, this is the way in which you will be like him. Isn't that your goal anyway, to be like God, to be confirmed in holiness like he is? And if this lets you know him and, and, and you know you will be like him, then this is what you should do. Well, that makes sense to me. I want to be like God. And so mm-hmm. he was not appealing to any perversity in, in her. He, he was a, appealing to a, a rational principle that seemed to make sense. And she forgot that it was exactly what God had said, don't do. And that is the way theological drift happens. When that happened, then we were put within a framework and where we trust our own judgment and our own desires for, for, for pleasure in a way that God has not said we should receive that pleasure. Uh, we trust that more than we trust what God's words are. And so um, that is how theological drift uh, happens. It's it's in our very natures now. I was I've been studying Romans one this morning, and it's so I think appropriate for this question you've asked because um, <clears throat> Paul there says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Hmm. So he's saying we have intrinsic to our creation and intrinsic to observing the creation around us a sufficient revelation of God that will let us know him, but we do not want to embrace him in the way that he is revealed. We want to take his gifts and filter them through our own desires and and pursue our lives in light of our desire for pleasure and for notoriety and for fame and whatever it, it is. And so the revelation of God is something that has not that does not capture our minds. We are consistently rejecting the revelation of God. That is that is the default position of a fallen person. Mm. And so it is very easy, therefore, for a person who uh, is uh, converted, uh, if the flesh is still operative, it's still it's very easy for a person somehow to begin to 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 put back in these ideas of his own rationality or or things that are not revealed in Scripture, and that's a part of the flesh that needs to be mortified. Mm. And the more and more we understand that kind of dynamic, then the more uh, clear we are and the more determined we are to live by every word of of God and to uh, desire to know what it means, to desire to glorify God in light of how he's revealed himself uh, and to uh, escape this whole tendency we have uh, to deny the the faith. I've been been reading 1 Timothy also. How many different things can cause us to compromise the faith or leave the faith? Mm -hmm. The desire to get rich, people will Will, will leave the faith because of that. Their, uh, their own speculations and wanting to follow myths, they will leave the faith. Uh, there are several times in which he talks about how you are not to believe any other doctrine, meaning other than what Paul had, had taught him, any speculation, anything that leads you away from, from a full obedience to the doctrine that has been revealed uh, has the danger of a denial of the faith in it. Mm. Back in the 90s at Southern Seminary, the battle was for inerrancy, uh, inerrancy of God's word. 
Is it safe to say that the battle we're seeing today is over sufficiency of scripture? Yeah, I think it is safe to say that. Uh, some of the things that we're dealing with uh, re- related to secular theories of, of justice uh, have within them a, a, an attraction for Christians. What Christian is not concerned about justice? Right. Uh, what con- con- Christian is not concerned about knowing that we all are, are equal, that we all have come from, from Adam? Uh, that there's no superiority within uh, any of us. And so when it's pointed out that while we have conducted ourselves as if we were superior and so forth, we begin to look at these kinds of philosophies that are designed to create equity within that. And we we try to think, well, maybe there's something within this that is really Christian. Um, Mm. I'm I'm really attracted to this idea of justice. I'm really attracted to this idea that some people have been uh, treated as less than, than human at particular times. So maybe there are within these theories. And so I think it's very easy for something like what we call, what is called critical, uh, critical race theory or social justice uh, to plant itself in the Christian uh, conscience uh, without our realizing that we are uh, embracing many more things than just a Christian principle of, of, of justice. Uh, and we forget that we already have a Christian principle of justice. We already have a revelation of God's justice and God's righteousness in the cross mm. and in the gospel. Uh, and that these are the things that we should study and these are the things with which we should be uh, content. But to impose then on the Christian faith because of the similarity of language, a view of justice uh, that actually is not biblical justice is a sort of drift that does not begin with a denial of the Bible. It just it begins with an idea that this kind of speculative philosophy might actually help us understand the Bible better. Mm-hmm. And so, as you've said it, that the problem is with the sufficiency of Scripture. We think the Bible is leaving something out that if we will just supplement it with this other philosophy, then we can we can follow the Bible's mandates more clearly. Uh, there is this one person that's very very prominent within s- some of the issues that are happening who is who has said, well, when we're talking about these issues of, uh, of, of justice uh, related to sexual abuse and things like that, uh, we can't do just exactly what the Bible says because the Bible was not written for these kinds of things. We have to start by believing the accusation uh, before we do any investigation. Well, see, that is, that is absolutely against what the Bible says about when you receive accusations, you have to have witnesses and you have to uh, be able to investigate it and so forth. But uh, but if the idea is that, well, the Bible is not sufficient for this situation, therefore we need to employ a secular way of reasoning, mm. then we have, we've denied the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm. I had a, a professor in seminary, uh, a philosophy professor, a good man, and uh, he, he became frustrated with uh, our class one day because I think some of the students were taking the material too lightly. Uh, and he said uh, to us very directly, Today's philosophy is tomorrow's common sense. Uh, And his point was that those in seminaries and universities, the the teachers, the professors, uh, they directly impact and influence the way that we think. So knowledge, whether good or bad, doesn't just stay in the classroom. Uh, Could you talk about that a little bit, how uh, these ideas? So I'm I'm thinking about the average church man or or church woman who's hearing this conversation and thinking, well, I'm not in seminary. I'm no longer in college. I don't need to worry about these worldly philosophies. 
Dr. Nettles, these philosophies don't stay in the classroom, right? They eventually leave the classroom and impact us even in our churches. So could you talk about that a little bit? There are two different spheres uh, that the Christian needs to be aware of. One is the sphere of the church and the truth that the church proclaims out of, out of Scripture. And he needs to be aware as to how <clears throat> other philosophies can actually impact the way things are taught in the church. So that, that's one sphere. Okay. Another sphere is we live in the world. We live in a world that is being uh, taught uh, various philosophies, various political philosophies, economic philosophies. Uh, and so we've got to make our way within that world. Uh, Jesus prayed, don't take them out of the world, but don't, don't let them be worldly, basically. And Paul said that if you were to separate yourself from those who do these immoral things in the world, then you'd have to get out of the world, which he was not advocating. But he was talking about, but within the church, you need to separate yourself from them. So on the one hand, what is taught in the theological seminaries eventually makes its way down to the churches through its preachers, through its education directors, through various staff members that are trained. And if there are erroneous ideas that are being taught in the seminary, and there is some teacher who seems to be very attractive and very spiritual, he can have students around him that believe what he says. They begin to practice and preach and believe like he does. They begin to transfer this to the churches and the churches, without even knowing it, begin to lose their fervor. They begin to lose their, 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 uh, their, their zeal for the truth of the word of God. They begin to substitute other things for the gospel. You begin to be, their, their worship services become more worldly and less focused upon expositional preaching. There are all different ways in which this begins to manifest itself to rob the church of its fervency for uh, the gospel and for, for the Bible. And then, of course, in the, in the world also, we begin to see these philosophies that are, first of all, in the college classrooms, beginning to dominate various leaders in, in business and in economics and in politics uh, in the world. And so we begin to see uh, the entire atmosphere of, of virtue and values uh, that had dominated a culture at one time, they begin to be taken away. Uh, and so... Uh, to the degree that we are involved in that, we begin to embrace worldly philosophies also. So these are the two spheres that we need to be very aware of so as not to embrace worldly philosophy in either one of them. Mm. Uh, and so those ideas that are taught within the classroom and seem to be rather esoteric and seem to be so impractical that no one would ever uh, believe them, it's just sort of an intellectual game that people are playing, all of a sudden it becomes real. It becomes something that people are actually advocating. Uh, and so if we're not careful within the sphere of the church, we will find ourselves uh, falling away from the, the clarity of the gospel. And if we're not careful in the way we as Christians relate to uh, the world, we can find ourselves involved in temptations to compromise simply because of the pressures uh, that are there. Uh, <clears throat> I know we, we have to be willing to go to prison. Uh, at some time, if the world becomes such that it outlaws what our basic core beliefs are, mm. uh, it makes them crimes to say certain things or to or to to propose certain ideas within our congregations or even to evangelize. And we are threatened with the idea of prison from the world. We have to be willing to go to prison. Mm. And so these are the two spheres in which we have very uh, clear con uh, connections and uh, we need to be aware of the demands of biblical revelation on our spirits and on our uh, fellowship in both these spheres.
Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. I, I think um, one of the things that, that drives my pastoring and my, and my um, ministry is uh, thinking about the importance of the local church um, and caring for the people that God has entrusted to me to shepherd. Uh, and, uh, and one of the concerns um, I have in that role is um, the ease that people have uh, to access teachers, popular teachers, uh, through you know uh, their their electronic devices or uh, through um, the internet uh, at home, uh, it, we can so easily um, access teaching that is suspect at best uh, and and you know maybe even fraught with error at worst. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's not anymore just that we are. Uh, making sure that we in our in our own pulpit are tight and and God honoring in our teaching, uh, but we also nowadays have to worry about the access that our people have to the outside popular teachers that that yeah. again may be teaching uh, things that are uh, not true. Yeah, that does it, it makes the the task quite formidable at, at times and. How we can be aware of everything that's happening out there is uh, is an impossible question to answer. We can't. Mm-hmm. And so there are people accessing all kinds of ideas from places that we would not be aware even exist. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is uh, one of the reasons, I think, as to why we need to uh, understand that there is that scriptural revelation forms our worldview. It forms our specific understanding of God and ourselves and of what salvation is. Uh, we trust in God's own uh, sovereignty and applying these things to our hearts, making sure that we always have a very clear word that's developing more and more clarity and power and strength in our minds so that our people are prepared to compare all of these different ideas they're hearing from out, out there with uh, this, uh, th- this uh, standard that they know is absolutely mm. uh, true. Uh, you can't refute every philosophy as it comes up, but you can have such a strong standard or such a strong foundation of truth that, that people can discern that themselves uh, and, and protect themselves uh, by God's spirit and by God's word from those philosophies that would tend to uh, destroy our understanding of the truth. Yeah, you just answered my next question. I was going to ask you how men and women in the church can identify theological drift and protect uh, themselves from it. And, and I think you just answered that by uh, by stating that we must be convinced of the standard of God's word and, and measure everything that we come into contact with against that standard. Yeah, I think that there's a, obviously the, the scripture is our only source of authority. There's no other authority. If you use the word authority in a univocal sense, nothing else has authority, but everything that is consistent with God's word uh, uh, is, uh, is informative to us. And if we would look at the history of the church and look at the development of various confessions through the church and become familiar with Orthodox confessions of faith, with Protestant confessions, being willing to criticize them where we see that they're wrong in different ways, but nevertheless, seeing this continuity of truth in all these important areas, knowing how the church has established itself in these truths and how it is worded uh, certain uh, beliefs, that can help us in our understanding of Scripture. We mm-hmm. we can we can say, okay, we know we have a doctrine of God. We know that God is a Trinity: He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the only God that exists. The only God that exists is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who raised Him from the dead. 
So that is a that, that that's something that can be rock solid in our understanding. And so when we go to read scripture, we know that we're going to find within scripture everything that confirms that. We know that we're we're sinful. We're related to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first persons. They failed. The, the sinfulness of the entire race is explained most uh, rationally and clearly in terms of our unity with Adam. And that is the way the Bible treats it all the way all the way through. And so we know we're sinful because of that. And we know the only answer to sin in which God can be just and yet justify uh, can be just uh, and yet justify sinners is through Christ's death on the cross. And so mm-hmm. Christ's atoning work is a truth that is present. It is there. Anything that contradicts Christ's atoning work is ipso facto wrong. And so we, we build up this, this systematic theology that is consistent with Scripture. Uh, and that becomes the touchstone for all other uh, ideas and philosophies that uh, begin to uh, appear and that can quite often be uh, uh, hidden in places that we would never uh, conceive. But if we have a very, very strong foundation of these truths, then we can critique all other ideas from the standpoint of those truths. Uh, so, uh, so a growing acquaintance with the historical teaching of the church through confessions of faith, how this relates then to our, our growth and our, our increasing maturity and our understanding of scripture uh, is the way that we protect ourselves from theological drift. Mm, that is excellent. In that my is excellent. Opinion. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a, a fantastic opinion that you hold. Dr. Nettles, are you working on any projects right now or uh, anything that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I probably flooded myself with more things than I can actually do <laughs> right now. The, the, the one that I really want to finish that I'm really trying to get everything else sort of pushed aside so I can finish is a, a small a biography of Spurgeon. I've done a larger biography of Spurgeon and my publisher wants me to do a short biography. So I'm, I'm working on it and I really want to get that finished. Also, I have a, I've done a book on, on worship. Uh, that I would like to get published. I've sent it off to one publisher and I'm waiting for a word from, from them. So those are a couple of things that I'm, I'm working Fantastic. on. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Nettles, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and I will, uh, I will put some information, some biographical information uh, and link to, to a couple of your books in uh, the show notes of, uh, of this show, of this episode. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Reclamation Worship. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Tom Nettles for taking the time out of his schedule to be a guest here on Reclamation Worship. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reclamation Worship. Again, please visit reclamationworship.com. Head over to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. We are on Instagram at Reclamation Worship, Facebook at Reclamation Worship, and Twitter at Reclamation H. Until next time, Soli Deo Gloria.